0: where we left off last time. Uh, we've been um, going through, we've gotten through the algae. We're looking kind of a, a quick tour here through the microbes, and uh, we've gotten through the algae. Uh, another way that they, these uh, microbes can be kind of classified is by, uh, are, they, are they parasites? Uh, many of them are. Uh, in fact, most pathogens would probably be considered to be parasites because they, they benefit by living on you and they, they do harm. and That's kind of the definition of a parasitic relationship. Uh, we're also gonna look at viruses. Viruses are a whole new world compared to bacteria, nothing like bacteria. Uh, the treatment of them, the identification of them is a completely different, different sort of thing. Uh, we have uh, parasitic worms, helmets. Now, these are macroscopic. They're included with microbes because generally the way that they are diagnosed is by looking for eggs or immature stages in the feces or in the blood and and that requires a microscope and they're there they're considered to be microbes even though the, the organism itself may be much larger than that uh, so these are some of the helmets here uh, we'll go, we'll get into them some more later these are some roundworms here um, this is a uh, another round worm. Uh, here, a penny there to give you an idea of size. These aren't very large. This is a tapeworm. It was taken out of somebody. Tapeworms can be quite long. Uh, they can be literally several. It can be yards long uh, if they've been there long enough. Uh, and th- th- these are included when we talk about microbes. So microbes includes bacteria, viruses. The Protists that are pathogens, fungi, because most of the time you, you can't see the fungi, because the hyphae are too small, or like the yeast, the individual cells are too small. And then we also have uh, the helmets, or worms. All of these are kind of lumped together under mi- microbes. Now, viruses very different. We'll look at them in a little more detail, farther along. Nobody really knows what to do with viruses. In more ways than one, I guess. Um, They have no cytoplasm, they don't have a cell membrane. Uh, When they're outside of another living thing, they don't metabolize, they don't do anything. They consist of a protein outer core, covering, and some genetic material inside. That's it. That's all there is. Now, their genetic material can be a little more uh, diverse than in the others. Everything else we've talked about is pretty much DNA as a genetic material. With viruses, we can have RNA or DNA, and it can be double-stranded or single-stranded, both of them. There are or- viruses <coughs> out there with single-stranded DNA. There is no. There are no other organisms, or we don't even know whether we should call them organisms. Because they don't do anything, uh, they're not. They're kind of outside the normal classification system. Okay. Um, some of them may have another membrane covering outside of the protein capsid. In order to be to to function, they must attach to a receptor on their specific cell. They must enter that cell, and use the cell's machinery to make new virus particles, which ultimately kills the cell. So they are parasites in that respect, intracellular, obligate, they cannot reproduce unless they're inside of a living cell. Okay. And everybody has viruses. Okay. In my other lab earlier today, we're talking about bacteriophages. Right? Bacteriophages are viruses that live on bacteria, they infect bacteria. Fungi have viruses, proteins have viruses animals, plants, everybody's got viruses. Again, many of them are not pathogens on us because they need to have a specific receptor on a host cell. Okay, <clears throat> So many of them are very species or a very narrow group of species specific because that receptor doesn't exist on other, or- in other organisms. So they're not infectious on those organisms. They can't attach. they can't do anything. So if your dog has a cold, has some kind of, you know, run, runny nose, run, you're not going to get that because your dog has different receptors than you do. They don't cross species lines easily. Okay. And here's an example. Uh, this is a, uh, a, a bacterium. This one's a uh, coccal bacterium. And you can see the little lunar lander up there on the top uh, has attached to its receptors. It's going to inject its DNA inside. That DNA will take over, start making new viruses. It'll make both the proteins for the outer covering. It'll make the DNA that gets stuffed inside of them. And when there's enough of them, uh, they will get out one of two ways. Either they, there will be enough of them that the cell will simply burst open and release them all, or they will come out one, at a, one or two at a time over several days okay? as they're produced. depends on the kind of virus, how they do that. Okay, so if you're going to be a successful virus, you have to find your host cell or you can't do anything. You have to get inside of it. You use it to make new viruses. And then you've got to get out again because you're not very successful unless you get back out. You'll see that about all, all, almost all the infectious organisms. And these are some other shapes here. Um, this is a typical bacteria phase here. Uh, that we see uh, this is Ebola. This is rabies. Don't remember what that one was. I think it's flu, but I'm not positive okay. um, And so we deal with viruses on a regular basis. Okay, if you have a cold, it's a virus. Not much you can do for it. You wait for your gonoly. Big bullet shaped one there at the, the top. Uh, it's one of the larger viruses. So uh, let's go back here. Uh, your book talks about a time period that they refer to as the golden age of microbiology. And basically, this was the early days when everything you did, you learned something new because nobody knew much. Uh, and first thing that we deal with is uh, is the idea of spontaneous generation. In other words, the idea then that life just appears out of nowhere. You know, if, if people are getting sick and you don't know what's causing it uh, or food is just spoiling and you don't know what's causing it, it's easy to think that, oh, that, those maggots I see in there, well, where'd they come from? I don't know where they came from. They just, there, there they are. Okay? Uh, but Today we know that uh, that does not happen. Okay, the the very first experiments that kind of sp- started the end of spontaneous generation were uh, Reddy. He was an Italian uh, uh, biologist. And as you take a piece of meat, you put it in a, in a jar and you leave it open. Yeah, flies you know flies get in there. They lay eggs. Those eggs hatch into maggots, and eventually those maggots turn into new flies. Well, we know that. I mean, that's common knowledge today. It wasn't back then. Okay, so he did another one where he sealed it completely. Nothing happened in here, and people would say, "Well, yeah, of course, you sealed it; nothing could happen." So then he put a piece of gauze over the top. The flies would come up here, but they couldn't get in and get down to the meat, and so no maggots developed. This was the beginning of showing that new life forms come from previous existing life forms. They don't just happen. And so this was the start of that process. Uh, Pasteur did this also. Uh, He did experiments with what are called swan necked flasks. They're glass flasks that have a top that comes out like this. Uh, And he would put some kind of a, what they called an infusion. They put some meat in water or some grain in water. They boil it so you know to break it down. And if you just left it like that, open to the air, after a while, that liquid, which is relatively clear to start, becomes cloudy and it starts to smell bad. And you know, okay. so what Pasteur did is he put it in one of these flasks like this. He boiled it and then. Air can get in and out. That's not a problem. But any dust or anything from the outside gets caught in the bed, and this remains sterile indefinitely. Okay. Which was, again, a demonstration that life does, does not appear spontaneously. Oh, by the way, he had to make these. I mean, you, you didn't go down to the local you know, supplier and, and buy these things. Nobody had them. You had to learn how to make your own flashlight. So, uh, the scientific method—and uh, this is all wrong, really—what uh, we teach you about the scientific method. Like that. Uh, but it's still something worth getting the basis of. Uh, we always teach it as though it's this linear pathway. Okay, you know. Observations lead to questions, which lead to a hypothesis to, and no, no, that's, it's not like that at all. It bounces around, you, you start talking to somebody else, what do you think, and, uh, you know, and, and it really, it's not a nice, neat, linear process. In fact, nothing about science is neat. It's very messy in the way that it works, but it comes up with answers eventually. Yeah? One person on TED Talks. Circle. Yes, yeah. Well, that there's I've seen a circle, and I've been trying to find a, a little animation that I've now lost, I can't find it again, uh, that I've seen where they compare the scientific method to a pinball machine. They put the little parts of it in there, and you watch the ball go banging back and forth and all over the place before you end up with some kind of an answer. That's the scientific approach. Now, you talk to colleagues, you, you try something, it doesn't work, you go back to the beginning, you try something else. Hopefully, you eventually get an answer, or at least part of an answer, okay? It takes a long time. It's not something that you can do easily. And, and it's gotten harder now because, well, a lot of the easy things have been done. You know, now you've got to get down in, in, into the details, and uh, you're I going to get a quick answer to things. Most of the studies take several years to come up with data, analyze the data. They present that, that leads somebody else to say, well, what if you change this, what would have happened? And then they go and they do that, and they you get more data. And eventually, you get enough data to get an idea of what's really, really going on. It's a slow process. But we do still, most of your textbooks are still teaching this old method here. Uh, Observation leads to a question, question generates hypothesis, hypothesis is tested. Now that part is often true. Once you get to a hypothesis, you're going to test it in in, in an experiment, if you are doing experimental research. There's also observational research. That's research too, okay? Jane Goodall was not doing experiments with chimpanzees. She was simply watching them and recording their behavior and paying attention to what they did. That's research just as much as the person in the lab that's mixing chemicals and, and all that, okay? Because she was able to come to from that. Okay, and this is another way. This is from the textbook. Uh, I would say, that what you would really want to do, there are no straight. There should be no straight lines in here. They're, they all go everywhere. Uh, if I can find that animation, album, I'm going to bring it in. I'm looking for it again. I know where I found it, but it's in a great big website with lots of pages, and it's hidden away on one. Of Now, the other thing that came after we got past this idea of spontaneous generation is the study of fermentation. Uh, started because of the wine industry in France. Okay? One of the problems was that they, they made wine, and it spoiled too quickly. It didn't keep in the bottle for very long. And they wanted, the, the, the people, who you know, the, the vineyards wanted to know, what can we do to... Better shelf life, okay, essentially, is what they're looking for. Um, Some people thought air caused it, others said there were living organisms. Nobody really knew what fermentation was, okay, so they funded some research, okay, and that research uh, was done by Pasteur. And so he tried some different experiments. Uh, He put it, uh, the grape juice was heated enough to kill the microbes that were in it put it in a flask you seal it nothing happens no fermentation uh, so that means you can reject this this hypothesis okay and obviously he did this many times before you could do that okay if it's just the air you could put it in one of these curved neck or swan neck flasks
1: and if it's the air that
0: causes it to occur then fermentation should happen okay so you always predict your results before you do the You don't predict your results after you already know what happened. You predict them based on your your hypothesis. You predict what should happen in the experiment. And then you compare what actually happens with your prediction. So they did this. No fermentation. That kind of rules out air. Maybe bacteria do that. Okay, so... The juice in the flask is inoculated with bacteria and then sealed uh, bacteria do ferment but they don't produce alcohol generally they produce lactic acid and other organic acids and, and that's not going to be good for the wine. Okay? so then he went down here I he went with yeast uh, put it in there and yep yeast reproduced they produce alcohol um, so Now that he knows what actually causes fermentation, he was able to come up with the process of pasteurization. In other words, you heat it just enough to kill most of the bacteria. okay? But not so much that you damage the product. That's the the fine line with with pasteurization. You don't wanna mess with the product, and that's why your milk has a day on it, and if you let it sit long enough, it will go bad. Because pasteurization doesn't kill everything that's in there. It kills pathogens. We heat it enough to kill the major pathogen that's found in milk normally. But there's still lots of things in it. And as the milk ages, they begin to metabolize and the milk starts to change. you reach that kind of time period in there where it doesn't smell bad but it's past the date, you should drink it, Should I not, probably can't because it's going to hurt you, Uh, but you're always kind of worried about that and then it then it begins to really smell bad and if you leave it in there longer it comes out in chunks okay that's just and that's a typical fermentation process okay that's what they do Uh, and so once this was all understood we could then begin to use these uh, yeast and bacteria to for foods, to make foods, uh, and uh, so uh, they turned out that fermentation doesn't really require living cells. If you, if you get the right enzymes, you can make it happen with the right enzymes. This really began in the, the field of, uh, of biochemistry. And, this, and then we're going to come to Robert here just in a uh, Today, uh, if obviously, if you have anything to drink that has alcohol in it. Because uh, that's how we make—that's how most alcohols made or ethanol is made, I should say. Uh, if you uh, like cheeses, most cheeses have either bacterial fermentation or in some cases fungal activity. Molds, you know, blue cheese—the blue part of blue cheese—is mold, but it gives it the flavor that we like. Uh, Roquefort's the same way. Uh, a lot of cheeses, or a number of cheeses like that. The holes of the Swiss cheese are made from fermentation producing carbon dioxide, which expands and makes holes. And I mean, that's how that happens. Yogurt is made by fermentation of bacteria. Okay, If you have a yogurt garden and it says active cultures, that means there's bacteria growing in there. Active cultures. Okay? You can also get yogurt that does not have active cultures. We, we used them to make it and then we kill them off. Uh, but those probiotic functions say eating yogurt back to the culture. Okay, so so the organisms, as we began to understand what they did, uh, today we can use them to do lots and lots and lots of things. Uh, and uh, there are, if if you go out into the Midwest, uh, particularly, there are, and they've been there, there there's a more of these plants now than there used to be, or uh, manufacturing like facilities, uh, to make to make ethanol. Now part of that goes into gasoline now, because you can't buy gasoline without it being 10% ethanol. Well, you can, not around here. But I was out in the western part of the state and you go up to a gas station and they got one pump that says no ethanol. You don't see that around here, but out there you can do um, uh, Maybe it's for farm tractors, and I, I, know, I don't know what, specifically why they have that. All right. um, <clears throat> but even before the use of ethanol in fuels, Ethanol was a very lucrative business. Okay. Most distilleries do not make their own alcohol. They buy it. Ethanol is ethanol. It doesn't really matter who makes it. It's ethanol. Okay. Um, my ex-wife uh, lived in Iowa on the Mississippi River, and they had a large plant there that was referred to as the grain processing plant. Basically, they took corn and they fermented it with yeast and they made a- alcohol. They shipped it on the river on barges that carried armed guards. There was an IRS agent that worked at the plant to make sure they all got taxed properly as it was made. I mean, big business. And of course now we're using it in fuels that makes it even bigger. Okay, so we can do that because we understand what the microbes do. If you don't understand what the microbes could do, then obviously that's not going to. And of course, the, all the craft breweries that are popping up all over the place. You know, it's like mushrooms after a spring rain. Oof, here they are. I mean, you know, all of a sudden there's a brewery over here. Where'd that come from? Uh, there's a lot of them. You know, just in Williamsburg, there are three that I know of. Well, two of them, only one of them's not open yet. There's one on 2nd Street uh, that's in the process of opening brass cannon from Twinos moving down near Aleworks. Uh, and so, you know, in Williamsburg's not a big also have a distillery in Williamsburg. Well, in New York County. Uh, but there's going to be another distillery in Williamsburg. Uh, so you know, this is big business. But now, again, we're moving from the mass produced to producing small quantities and smaller uh, smaller areas. Alright. Now, Robert Cook. <coughs> Some people pronounce it Coke. Uh, he's German. His he is important, well, for several reasons. Uh, first of all, he was the first person that understood and developed staining techniques for bacteria. If you put bacteria under a microscope and you try to look at them, they're really hard to see, even though, even if you can magnify them, because like us, they're mostly water. Most of the light goes right through them. They're very difficult to see any details. You have to stain them if you really want to see them easy, you know, well. He developed simple staining techniques and in a few weeks we'll be doing simple stains in life okay. and then we're also going to be doing gram stains and later on we'll be doing endospore uh, stains there's a lot of different staining techniques okay he took the first photomicrograph uh, he learned how he developed the use of petri dishes but more importantly which it doesn't really say directly on here he has developed agar as a medium. Prior to that, they used gelatin. And gelatin works. The problem is that gelatin melts awfully close to room temperature. And so you really have problems with it. Agar doesn't. Agar melts at a slightly higher temperature. and So it stays relatively solid at room temperature. In fact, even above room temperature. It stays solid at, at body temperature. Because tonight, you're going to inoculate plates. We're going to incubate them at 37 degrees centigrade, okay, body temperature, 98.6. You know, so, And the auger stay solid at that temperature. Gelatin would melt all over the place tried to do that. So he's important for that. Uh, he learned how to do a transfer of bacteria from one medium to another. Uh, and so generally, what this is kind of what some of you will see next week on your plates that you make tonight. You see all different kinds of bacteria growing up. How do we know that they're different ones? Well, the colonies, each of these is a colony. Generally speaking, a colony starts from a single bacterial cell, or maybe just a few. And as it grows, it spreads in a circular manner, roughly circular. But each of these has different characteristics. Some are different colors. This one's very white. This is kind of milky. This one's one's very tiny compared to the others. This one here has a... Kind of like a little rim around it. Now that is different. Uh, this one, very rough uh, edges. Uh, you can tell pretty quickly by looking at the colonies that you have different bacteria. Now you don't necessarily know what they are, but you at least know that how many different kinds of bacteria you have, based on the number of different kinds of colonies that you end up with. Um, uh, we'll talk about this later. Right we'll come back to Cook later, because the other thing that Cook did is he was the very first person who made a distinct connection between a specific bacterium and a particular disease. And that's what really started the revolution in microbiology. Okay. Again, prior to his time, people got sick, Got infections, things happen, but we had no idea why or what was causing it. He made that connection, and we'll talk about something later on in the course called Cook's postulates, which is a method, a methodology for doing that. Uh, his first one was anthrax. He, he, he was able to demonstrate that this bacterium causes this disease. That was new; nobody else had ever been able to do that. Okay. Uh, How do we prevent infection? There's been a whole list of people. Don't worry about memorizing these names. Um, But, I mean, back in the old days, physicians didn't even wash their hands. They'd work on one person and say, okay, off with us, bring the next one, dive right in. That's so great, they didn't know. Well, maybe they should have known, but they did. If you watch, and I I think it's on, I, I don't know if I'm going to have time to stay up late to watch it, mainly because I tend not to get enough sleep, so I shouldn't stay. But anyhow, PBS this weekend, they're starting a series on uh, hospitals in the Civil War. It, it's set in Richmond, and it has to do, and I'm sure it's very dramatic, much more dramatic than it really needs to be. But you will get to see some of the techniques that were used, okay? Battlefield surgery back then was <laughs> slap him on the mm-hmm. table if he's got an injury in his leg. We can't prevent infection we have no means of doing that just half the leg off sear the end so it won't well, throw a bucket of water over the table and put the next one down and go to work that's what they used to do okay well now we know that's not so good okay uh, hand washing really helps uh, lister developed a, was the first to use an antiseptic uh, he used a very strong antiseptic called phenolic acid uh, which actually damages tissue to some degree, but it basically sterilized it. And he found that he had a lot less problem with people dying after surgery from infection with that. Um, of course, Nightingale, and the ner- whole nursing profession to take care of people, um, man by the name of Snow, you're gonna run into him and lab later in the semester. He's the one who's the very first person who, who we would call an epidemiologist, figure out how a disease spreads and how to stop that. That's a really interesting field. Um, we get into immunology with vaccines. Uh, Jenner, we'll talk about him a little bit later, uh, with the first smallpox vaccine. Actually, it was cowpox that he used, but it worked because it was close enough to smallpox. Uh, and then we get into chemotherapies. Uh, and the key to chemotherapy, well, the magic bullet was antibiotics at first. A, that's a problem, but back when they first came out, penicillin, that was the answer to everything. Okay, uh, that's chemical therapy, chemotherapy. That was the beginning of chemotherapy. And the key to that is what we call selective, uh, kind of a selective ability to kill the pathogen without harming the host. That's, that's what you're after when you do that. Um, Worldwide, there's an increasing number of emerging diseases. Uh, West Nile virus, it's about, about 12 years ago. It was the first introduction in the United States, in New York City. It has since spread over the entire country. It's <coughs> endemic to Virginia. We don't get a lot of cases in Virginia, but it is here. It's mosquito transfer. Uh, birds are the reservoir for it. Uh, we have, uh, of course, hepatitis particularly hepatitis C some encephalitis diseases Uh, here we have ehrlichiosis which is transmitted by tips Uh, SARS that was probably about 10 12 years ago I don't know the exact date SARS is sudden acute respiratory syndrome Uh, started in, in China quite a few cases in Canada Canada actually stopped people from traveling from that part of China until they, because people were getting this, they were dying, and nobody knew what it was. That's the scariest thing in, in, in the medical field. People are getting sick and they're dying. We have no, we have absolutely no idea what's causing it. West Nile was like that at first, too. West Nile comes from Africa. How'd it get here? Nobody really knows. mosquito born, maybe the mosquito got in an airplane. Managed to, you know, stay hidden. Off of Kennedy, you know, started flying. Oh, and things to bite. We don't know. It doesn't matter. It was. It was here. Uh, by then. Um, also, an increasing number of drug-resistant strains of bacteria. We will have a couple of videos in lab about that. Um, and I think I will just kind of skip through these. Uh, yeah, we use them for years. Uh, or baking. I mean, if you wanted your bread to always be like crackers, then we could not use yeast in baking, but you know, we like, people like bread that's softer. Okay? And that's not just here. That's, that's pretty universal. Bread is, is, you find in many, many cultures. Bread. Cheeses, uh, at one time, they would put moldy bread on wounds. Or mold from a tree, tree moss, they would put on a, on a wound antibiotic. Essentially, they had antibiotics. Often, uh, on moldy bread, besides the typical bread mold, you often get penicillin. On it as well. And so, we didn't know why it worked, but you know, very experimental. Uh, you can also use them for bioremediation. When we have oil spills, there are bacteria they put in the water. then actually feed on petroleum in the water and help get rid of it, some of it. They don't get rid of all of it, but they help. So, this is Introduction to Microbiology, okay? Um, I'm going to go ahead and start into the next lecture. Because we have about 15 minutes left. Uh, but this kind of gives you an overview of some of the things we're going to do. You're going to be uh, where would I be? Okay, so the first thing we're going to look at is cells. And you already know what cells are. We will focus mostly on uh, prokaryotic cells because that's what we do. Um, I have information on eukaryotic cells. I won't spend a lot of time on that. You, you probably know those pretty well. But we're going to look at cell structure and function. So, in, in the, the process of life occurring, there are several things that uh, that are characteristic of life. Life, you know, th- things grow and develop. They reproduce, they are responsive, they have metabolism. And all of this is done on a cellular level. Cell is the basic unit of living organisms. Okay? Uh, you work only because all of the cells in you work together to make you work. When they can't do that, then it's all over. Okay? So, we really we want to understand about cells. And uh, I'm not going to uh, go over the table here, this is uh, All of all uh, eukaryotic organisms do these, and archaeans and bacteria. Viruses, they don't grow on their own. They don't replicate on their own. They have to be in a host cell to replicate. Uh, They do react to their host cell. They don't have any metabolism of their own. They have no ribosomes. They can't make any proteins of their own. They have to do that inside their host. Uh, They have no cytoplasm. They have no cell membrane. So are they alive or not? Interesting question. Not much consolation to think, well, they're not really alive when you've got a cold or the flu. It's been caused by a virus. Okay, okay. So we're going to look at some cells here. Uh, bacteria on one side, the other side is a paramecium. Okay. We already kind of talked about this briefly. The morphology of bacterial cells. Morphology means shape. What does it look like? Okay. So we have the caucus, which is the round spherical type of cell. They can be, uh, there are different arrangements of them which we'll get to. Uh, we have rod-shaped organisms. Okay, also called bacillus. We have some that are kind of, is this really round or is this a bacillus? And so they call them uh, a cuspid bacillus. It's kind of a wimpy, wimpy now. Vibrios are curved, like commas. Uh, and then we have Spirulium and the Spirochum, okay, which have that kind of screw-type shape. Now, prokaryotes are bacteria and archaea, major things here. They don't have a nucleus. Okay, their DNA is just in the cytoplasm. And we're going to do a, uh, next time we're going to do a case study. It's a made-up one, but... Uh, they don't have any internal structures uh, like eukaryotic cells have. No mitochondria, no endoplasmic reticulum, no Golgi apparatus, yeah, none of that stuff that you've probably forgotten the names of since you took biology to on the web. Okay? They're generally very small, one micrometer. That's about 10 times smaller than most eukaryotic cells. Now, eukaryotic cells are not all the same size. I mean, you have cells, and you of all different sizes. Some are very small, like sperm cells are tiny. Um, but they don't need to be big. All they need to do is be able to swim like hell and find an egg. That's it. But that's their that's their goal in life is to find that egg and fertilize it. Okay. Um, and so you, they're they're basically stripped down cells. Okay. In order to do that, the egg is the largest cell in in a human, in any human. Okay. Because uh, has a lot of nutrients in it, and things that were formed during its development that would start the process of development of the fetus So these but prokaryotes are relatively simple, and their structure. structured. So this is kind of an overview. So here's a typical uh, prokaryotic cell, and what we're going to do is we're going to talk about each of the different parts and, and what its function is. So, if, if you remember, Valley, uh, when you took 101, we weren't doing the, the core concepts uh, thing as far as the objectives of the course, in fact, we just started that last year. Uh, core concepts in our general biology now, and this is relatively statewide as far as community colleges, are that in our evolution, the uh, energy flow and material movement in cells, Information storage and flow in cells, structure and function, that structure and function are connected. Uh, that living things operate as systems. As a system, all the parts are interconnected, and when you mess with one of them, it has an effect on the others. Okay. And then, lastly, we use the process of science. as, a, as our sixth core concept. This is going to be a lot of structure and function. Okay, now, as an overview, eukaryotes do have a nucleus. They have internal membrane-bound organelles, much larger, 10 to 100 times larger, very complex, and these are the kind of organisms. that probably want. And this is a typical eukaryotic cell. Very complex and very busy in comparison to the, uh, to the procurator. Uh, different sizes, okay, chicken egg. Chicken egg is one cell. Surrounding that yolk inside is a cytoplasmic, is, is cytoplasmic, cytoplasmic, okay, it's a single cell. Now the egg white part is not part of the cell, but the rest of it is. Okay, this is a, an intestinal parasite, Giardium, uh, you get some idea of its size, this is a typical bacterium, typical virus.
1: This, all of this in this
0: box would fit idea of size. Alright, so we're gonna work our way through prokaryotic cell. Let go back to the pictures for just a minute. Okay, so we're gonna start off with this outer layer, of glycocalase. Now glyco means sugars. So this is a sugar and protein substance, it's polysaccharides, polypeptides, it's gelatinous it's sticky it's slimy it's like mucus very much like that now not all bacterial cells have this uh, but those that do uh, it inhibits white blood cells from engulfing them it slows them down it uh, if you remember back to biology 101 uh, in genetics we talked about Frederick Griffiths we'll talk about him again here in two kinds of Two strains of the same bacteria, that one was was made colonies that glistened, shiny, the other made colonies that were not. The one that glistened was pathogenic and caused pneumonia. The one that was not shiny was non-pathogenic and did not cause pneumonia. The difference, the ones that were shiny had a glycocalyx. Inhibited white blood cells, long enough for the infection to get going. Okay. But once without that, they got gobbled up so fast they never had a chance to do it. Okay. Glycocalyx, they're important. Now, not just for that. You have them right now doing things. I would hazard a guess that not many of you have brushed your teeth in you know, within the last several hours. You've got bacteria in your mouth with a glycocalyx that they're using to slide up right next to your teeth. Okay, stick, and then others stick around them, and then they start secreting materials and they form a biofilm around your tooth. We call that plaque, okay? Uh, and other bacteria get involved. I mean, there's it's somewhere in the order of, not at any one time, but over a period of time, over 200 different bacteria can be found in people's mouths. Okay, it's not a pretty place. Human bites are one of the worst wounds to treat in hospitals. They get infected really easily. Dog bites are far less of a problem, generally. Not that you should, not that your dog's mouth is that clean, because you've all seen what they eat. so I mean, you know it's not that. I don't know about your dog, or my dog, but I used to have, it. she would eat anything. The worst it smelled, the more likely she wanted to, to eat it. That's the way dogs are. It amazes me they don't get sick more often. They go, they drink out of the ditch, they eat dead stuff that's been laying out there, no, we wouldn't survive doing that. Okay. Anyway, this is the glycocalyps. There's really two types. There's a capsule, which is really firmly attached to the cell surface. It may also help prevent them being recognized by the host. And then there's a slime layer, which is more loosely attached. and is sticky and allows them to stick to surfaces. One of the problems bacteria or microbes generally yeah, is that most places in the body that they get into, you're you're moving them out as fast as they can get in. You have tears in your eyes, you have saliva in your mouth, you've got uh, the uh, propulsion in the uh, up the trachea and down through the digestive tract. If you don't get attached, you're gone. Okay, I mean, you know, and So this is an important part of of their of their being able to survive. And so here's a, a look, look at them. This is the glycocalyx. This is uh, a capsule. This is the slimy one, kind of loosely associated. This one is much more organized around the outside of the cell. Now, many bacteria have flagella. And obviously, these are for running around, okay, for movement. Uh, they're generally fairly long. Not all bacteria have them. Now, their structure is very different from flagellum in a eukaryotic organism. Here's a picture. I'll go back to that other one. Uh, So this is the cell wall. This happens to be a gram-positive organism. This is the cell wall. This is the cell membrane. This is the attachment of the flagellum through the membrane and through the wall. These are kind of like little motors down here. And then you'll notice it has a hook-like arrangement. So it comes out, and it and it goes uh, as it comes out. It goes like this. Okay. Now, when that rotates, it's not like the pictures you've seen of the sperm cells swimming around, here waving yeah, the tails, waving. Here, what happens is this thing rotates, so around and around. And this is what generates. The, this is unique to, to uh, bacteria. This is a gram-negative one down here. Uh, same basic arrangement. It's got more layers, it has to go through it. We're going to talk about the cell walls more. So, they have a filament and a hook. The basal body is what attaches them and anchors them. And they can be arranged in lots of different ways. This one's got, it's called paratricus. I'm not going to get into the are a flagellate, but it's got flagelli everywhere. You know, I mean, you know, this is uh, kind of like somebody whose back is covered in hair. They're like that. Um, they've got the flagella all over them. This one has only one. It happens to be at the end. This one has a tuft. It has several of them attached at one end. And you name it. Or an arrangement of flagella. you will find some bacteria that has it and you'll find some bacteria that don't have any flagellia. Okay. If you are a spirochete you have something called this is essentially like a flagellum that goes along the body of the cell and it has this what's called an axial filament it's relatively rigid and essentially the there are flagella inside of it and the whole thing rotates around the cell and this is what causes them to get that scrutiny like shape that the have. Okay, so their function is to move and we'll, next time what we'll do is we'll talk about how this works how they can get close to things how they can get away from things they don't want to hear through this run and tumble arrangement uh, there's no thought involved there's no brain um, but you'll see that it's so that's where we'll pick up next time. And I'll, I'll be jumping up in the, the lab here in about yeah, 10 minutes or so.